No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, a grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. We hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Uh, uh, we have, we're pre-recording today because we were lucky enough to snag the new Attorney General, who may in fact be the busiest man in Washington, D.C. right now, uh, and uh, so you won't be able to call in with questions, but uh, since uh, our Attorney General has to go early, uh, we're going to start right off with the questions. Brian Schwab, welcome to Shadow Politics. Thank you so much for being on my show, sir. We're so happy well, you've thanks. been elected. Thank you, Senator Brown. It's a, it's a uh, delight to be with you. Well, you know what? We have such great hope for you. You seem like such a wonderful person. Uh, you and I first met through Bruce Cherendoff, who's one of the nicest people on the planet, I think. So you come highly recommended, and we have great hopes for you. You know, in 2010, uh, I worked very hard to get uh, an elected attorney general uh, in the District of Columbia because uh, we thought that if we want to be a state, we should act like a state. And that's what states do. They elect their attorney generals. Uh, your office, however, is unusual as an attorney general's office. I'm, I'm after 16 years, I'm an expert at having an unusual office. Uh, so I've worked very hard to do things to think outside the box. And I think Carl Racine did a little of that, too, when he was attorney general. How do you think you can use, have you thought about this, how you can use the unusual nature of your job to help the people of the District of Columbia? Well, um, Senator, you're exactly right in terms of uh, thinking a little bit about the importance of an independently elected Office of Attorney General in the District of Columbia. One really significant stride toward a more representative democratic city was having an opportunity for the residents of the District of Columbia to vote for uh, their attorney general, that an attorney general independent of a mayorally appointed attorney general meant that you had an attorney general that was more directly responsive to the people who live in the District of Columbia. Uh, additionally, the statute which creates the attorney general says that I've got two simultaneous jobs. I've got to represent the city, uh, the agencies, the mayor and the council, and be the chief law officer of the city, but also represent and defend and advance the public interest. And it's that public interest obligation that um, really allows the Office of Attorney General, as you say, to think outside the box, to think creatively 
about how the law can be used every day to make people's lives better and safer. Well, given that, I, I've got to ask you about the overhaul of the D.C. criminal code. Now, lots of people that I respect, including you, seem to be in favor of this. But unfortunately for me, the one problem I have, the mayor's just vetoed this bill. And the one problem I have is that yesterday, two children were shot on their way home from school uh, on a metro bus. And we've had this really, a real increase in violence with children. 105 children shot in the district last year, twice as many as in 2021. And the one problem I have with the reform of the code, which I don't know much about, I have to be honest, is <clears throat> the reduction of mandatory minimum sentencing for gun offenses. Is this the right message to send to the community at this particular point in time to reduce these sentences, which I understand are not generally invoked anyway? How do you feel about that? Well, let me start with the fact that um, it's heartbreaking to me, and I think heartbreaking to many people in the District of Columbia right. to see um, how many kids and really young kids are being impacted by gun violence. And young kids being shot, uh, being the victims of crime, young kids that are occasionally offenders um, is heartbreaking. Uh, it has to make all of us to sort of stop and say, how did, how do we get here? And, and what do we all collectively do to try to make sure our young people are safe uh, and that they grow up healthy and hopeful? Um, I think that all of us, uh, and most significantly my role as attorney general, we all play a role in, in trying to address that issue. I do think when we're talking specifically about the revised criminal code, that it is important for us to remember um, that the code was reforming a um, set of inconsistent principles in our law that were long overdue for an overhaul. The, the criminal code was first passed more than 120 years ago, passed at a time when women and, and, and African-Americans weren't at the table being heard about what the law should be. Over the years, it was sort of changed and cobbled together with amendments that ended up making it not only anachronistic, but also inconsistent internally. And when you have inconsistency in the law, particularly in the criminal code, you can get to really unfair, inconsistent results. So the effort made at reforming the code was a long time in coming. It was more than a decade of effort to bring great uh, thought leaders and community input to the table. And I think that the code um, is a very, the resulting code is one that's going to make us a safer, healthier, more fair uh, city. Any legislation has some compromise and negotiation, and this is no different. But I think by and large, um, this is a very important step toward making our city safer. I also want to say that I totally understand why people feel like um, anytime you change the maximum penalties, it may be sending the wrong message. I think we have to remember our history. We, we have not made ourselves safer as a country or a city by locking people up. Uh, and we know that increasing the amount of time that people are incarcerated 
sending people away for mandatory minimum sentences did not result in America generally or Washington, D.C. specifically becoming safer. And so I want people to keep that in mind when they think about what message this sends. Um, we don't send a message of being safer by saying we're going to lock people up or we're going to lock people up longer. Well, let me ask you now, the mayor has vetoed this bill and it goes back to the the council. We assume the council is going to pass it, override her veto because they unanimously passed the legislation to begin with. But is there a way is how important is the mandatory minimum sentencing? Is there a way to modify the bill and still keep the uh, reform that you talk about of a bill that's obviously way out of date, uh, but but keep the mandatory sentencing? Is that something they can do, or is the mandatory sentencing really an important part of this whole process? Because the mayor says there must be consequences, and what I hear a lot is that people talk about how unfair the previous uh, uh, situation was to people of color. But I think, keep thinking to myself, uh, you know, you've grown up in the city, you've raised children, I've raised children in the city. The victims of the violence are also people of color. What about the victims? Is there is there some way to deal with the mandatory uh, sentencing or is that an important part of this whole process? You're exactly right. You know, the, the impact of violence in our city, the impact of gun violence in particular, is visited most often on, on communities of color in our city. And so, um, to me, we have to make ourselves safer as a city uh, for racial justice reasons as much as public safety reasons. But I really think, Senator, we need to separate out the conversation about safety and mandatory minimums. I think that it's a disconnect that our history and the data doesn't support. We don't make ourselves safer by locking people up for longer periods of time. We can't lock our way out of, the, you know, lock people up and lock our way out of this safety challenge. We've got to deal with crime. And in the Office of Attorney General, as you know, our prosecutorial authority is over juvenile uh, delinquency cases. That's kids younger than 18. Uh, our office does prosecute cases, gun cases, cases where kids are using guns to hurt or scare people. We prosecute those cases. Um, but prosecution, by definition, happens after a crime has occurred. And when we really want to focus on making ourselves safer as a city and a community, we've got to work on stopping crime before it happens. And that's where I think the resources and the collective focus needs to be in terms of long-term solutions to making ourselves safer. We ask ourselves, why are kids uh, victims of crime? Why are kids uh, using guns to resolve disagreements? Um, what kind of ways in which uh, our society could keep kids safe are we not doing? Um, this word accountability is an important one, and I do think we have to hold people who break the law accountable, but I also think we have to hold ourselves accountable. How has society let kids down and let ourselves get to a situation where young kids are using guns um, and committing crimes with them? Well, um, I agree with that. And, and you and I have, we realize that Washington, D.C. is really two cities. You and I have 
raise children. I saw your three lovely daughters at your uh, when you gave your novel address. I watched it on, on the Internet. And I raised three kids in this city. And one of the things you said in your novel address is that we have to close the gap between, uh, well, let, let's just be straightforward with it. We have to close the gap between Ward 7 and 8 and wards one, two, and three, right? We, we, we live in a different city. My kids all got great educations. They went to Wilson High School. They went to DC public schools from pre-K through, through high school. They all went to college, they all got college education. Uh, but that's not the case in Anacostia. We see when I was first uh, inaugurated, 51% of the kids uh, Anacostia High School did not finish on time. So what do we do to, what do we do and specifically what can you do as Attorney General to help close that gap? So, you know, Senator, I think what's really important is that we, um, we really work together to change the narrative. Um, I, ha- I, I happen to think that there are a tremendous amount of really talented, smart, innovative entrepreneurial young people in Anacostia and Ward 7 and 8, really all over our city who are doing great things. The vast majority of young people in our city uh, are resourceful, are, are smart, are hopeful about where they're going, and they're working hard. But candidly, you know, being teenagers is tough. Um, you know, teenagers are biologically hardwired to be taking risks, to be individuating from their parents, to be figuring out how they um, can, you know, spread their wings. And I think the vast majority of young people in our city, wherever they live, are doing that. Um, we, we have to be careful about a narrative that takes a couple of, of, of small numbers and blows it into a much bigger story. Um, as, you, as you probably know, while there are um, an uptick in certain crimes in our city, the vast, vast minority of crimes committed in our city are committed by young people. Uh, the last data that was projected by the Department of Justice and by our MPD showed, you know, less than 8% of overall arrests are of, of kids. So, um, you know, the narrative needs to be different. I think kids across our city need fair and safe places to make mistakes. To your question, there is a privilege oftentimes associated with, um, with race and with economic well-being in our city that says that some kids can make mistakes and be given second and third and fourth chances. And other kids, maybe by virtue of the color of their skin or their uh, economic status, don't get that same privilege of making mistakes. Making mistakes is part of growing up and learning from them. And I think all kids in our city deserve that privilege of being able to make mistakes in safe places and in ways where when they make mistakes, it does not put their life or their liberty at jeopardy. Well, first, let me say that I think that's the kindest description of teenagers that, that I've ever heard, having, having raised three teenagers myself. But I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think we don't put enough resources uh, to that end. And I hope that we can all work together uh, to do that. Uh, so uh, given that that seems to be a priority of yours, what are the other priorities of your office now that you have, have you thought that far ahead? 
I know you're still trying to get organized and get everybody together, but uh, what, what, what other priorities you have? Well, Senator, as you know from, from our conversation, um, you know, I, I try to follow the advice my dad gave me when I was a little boy about why God gives us two ears and one mouth. Um, I'm really committed to listening and to being um, able to use what I learned from listening and advancing priorities and initiatives. One thing that is a high priority is I'm going to be more um, committed to institutionalizing the way the Office of Attorney General listens community, uh, our community engagement efforts, the way in which we are gathering real-time information from the residents of the District of Columbia, I want the residents of the District of Columbia to know what the Office of Attorney General does, that we're, how we can help people, um, how we can push information out that can help people help themselves, uh, being not only a resource but also in the nature of public education about how our justice system works, the difference between the Office of Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, talking about issues of home rule and statehood. All of that comes from being in dialogue with the community. I know in listening to people across the city, one high priority um, right after public safety is people want to see our city be more fair and make sure that the resources of our city, the opportunities that those resources lend themselves to, are shared across the city. And that's a high priority for the Office of Attorney General when we're enforcing anti-discrimination laws and housing laws, consumer protection laws, protecting our seniors, protecting tenants and workers, all of that is critical to um, advancing the priority of equity because everybody who lives in our city should be able to enjoy its prosperity or at least have a fair shot at it. And the law plays a critical role there. Um, you know, finally, in terms of priorities, uh, for me, based on what I've heard people tell me, they want the Office of Attorney General to be fighting for core democratic values. Um, particularly at a time across our country where we worry uh, and are seeing a real siege on democracy. Um, as you know, an issue near and dear to your heart uh, is statehood, um, you know, the, the absence of full representation for the 700,000 people who live here in the district is a critical issue of democratic rights that we need to be fighting for. Uh, we need to be thinking about home rule too, but also it's voting rights across the country. It's reproductive freedom. It's making sure we're standing up against white supremacy and anti-Semitism and transphobia and homophobia. All of those uh, rule of law, critical democratic principles are a high priority uh, for the people who live in the District of Columbia, and therefore they're a high priority for the Office of Attorney General. Well, you know, we're about to go into a battle here I think like one that we haven't seen in a long time in the District of Columbia. Uh, as you point out, democratic values are under attack. And uh, here in the district, they're going to be particularly under attack because um, the conservative, very conservative forces in uh, Congress love to hold the District of Columbia hostage. And already, Congressman Clyde of Georgia has introduced legislation in the last Congress, actually, to end home rule. Uh, Congressman Davis of uh, Illinois introduced a bill that would change the way we vote in the district. It would outlaw 
uh, early voting and would outlaw uh, would require voter ID and certain other things that we're against. And of course, our friend from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has called the District of Columbia a crime-ridden hellhole and, and also seeks to get rid of home rule. And Senator Lee, even in the Senate, Senator Lee from Utah, has introduced federal legislation that would keep us from uh, um, applying the law we have in the District of Columbia that protects same-sex couples. So what can we do? do we, we understand that, that Congress, the House, can pass legislation which would then probably die in the Senate and certainly would not be signed into effect by the president. But what can you do, do you think, as attorney general to protect us from these things that that are coming our way, these attacks that are coming our way. Uh, yeah, it, it is, uh, it's an atrocity that um, we're still talking about representation of people who live in the District of Columbia. We know the very real impact it has on people who live in the District of Columbia that we don't have um, representation and that we are not a state. Um, you talk about uh, our judiciary and the ability to have judges confirmed um, when you don't have access to justice, to, to access to the courts to address issues that are impacting people every day, um, it, it has a huge negative impact on people's lives. Um, we could talk about our prison and parole and probation system. Um, there's so much about people's lives in the District of Columbia that are negatively impacted directly because we are not a state and don't have full representation. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States has said statehood is a political issue. It's not, it's not to be litigated. It's to be um, resolved in the space of politics. And I think what we can do, what we all need to do, and what I as AG will do, is to be a voice advocating and making the case for why the District of Columbia deserves to be the 51st state. Um, you know, the Office of Attorney General of the District of Columbia is regularly engaged with other state AGs across the country. Uh, both Republican and Democrat. Uh, that is a place where I will continue to articulate why under legal principles and sound logic and morality, the District of Columbia should be recognized as a state. And hopefully uh, the people who I'm engaging with are leaders in their communities who can carry that message forth. Uh, we're going to continue to be an advocate and a thought leader on issues of national importance. Again, bipartisan issues like you know, opioid addiction and environmental protection and things in which it's not a red versus blue issue, but AGs across the country feel these are important issues for the people they're protecting. Um, and being a leader in that space, I think, helps affirm why the District of Columbia should be a state. And as you said at the beginning, we're going to continue to run an extraordinarily talented, independent Office of Attorney General. We're going to build on the excellence and like you said, states, uh, if we're going to be a state, we should act like a state. We elect an attorney general like other states, and we're also going to run an office of attorney general that is the, um, you know, the apple of the eye of everybody across the country of what they aspire to have in their elected attorney general in terms of excellence, work ethic, integrity, getting results for, uh, for the client. So, all of that are ways in which I can be part of an overall effort to advocate why uh, we need to end the status quo and become the 51st state. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, we, we continue to go back to court. 
Uh, D.C. Appleseed lost a case last year where the court reaffirmed what you just said in Adams versus Clinton, that this is a political fight and not a legal fight. And, and that's unfortunate for us. Well, you're, we're almost running out of time with you because I know you have another place to be. But let me ask you before I let you go, is there anything you want to say that I haven't asked you? Well, first of all, let me just thank you for giving me an opportunity to chat with you. I look forward to doing it again. Um, we're, we're towards the end of our second week, but I will say that, you know, the folks who are work, who work here in the Office of Attorney General, who I'm getting to work with every day, um, come to work with one mission in mind, which is how do we use the law to make people's lives better and safer? How do we help the District of Columbia do what it needs to do, the government, which is to work and to be accountable and to deliver for people who vote and who live here and who pay taxes? And um, I am energized and I'm looking forward to continuing the work and we'll find some time hopefully soon to continue the conversation. Well, thank, thank you, you for so much me. for being. Yeah, thanks for being with me. And let me tell you that I voted for you. And the more I talk to you, the more I'm convinced I made the right decision. So we have great hope for your office. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Mr. Attorney General, and I hope that uh, we get to get to, to talk again soon. Um, thanks. Terrific. Take care. Take care, Senator. All right. All right. Bye. Thanks. And that was uh, our new Attorney General, Brian Schwab, who was just elected, overwhelmingly elected, uh, and, and follows in the footsteps of Carl Racine, who was a great Attorney General. He was our first elected attorney general, and he kind of set the, uh, the uh, mood, I guess, or, or the, the, the way the office uh, should be constructed, and he's done some very interesting things, and maybe the next time Brian's on the show, we can ask him about some of those things and whether he's going to carry some of the, those issues uh, forward. Uh, I know that he worked with um, Attorney General Racine and that the Attorney General, the former Attorney General, endorsed him uh, vigorously, as I did. Excuse me, I'm starting to get a dry throat. But uh, so we look forward to uh, him moving forward to prevent crime in the District of Columbia, which is a terrible problem these days, as it is in so many places. I don't want to single out the District of Columbia as being, um, you know, different than any other major city when it comes to trying to deal with the urban problems that we seem to have. Uh, but uh, we have great hope for him in working with juvenile crime and also with um, working collaboratively with our delegation to promote statehood in the District of Columbia, which we really need. We need it to be equal. You know, uh, just so you understand, I wasn't able to explain this at the beginning of the show because I wanted to, we had a limited time with the Attorney General, so I wanted to ask as many questions as I could. But just so you understand, our listeners understand, um, we don't prosecute 
crimes in the District of Columbia, except juvenile crimes. I was arrested, for example, this is, this is kind of funny, a little ironic, but I was arrested uh, in front of the Senate uh, for standing up for the rights of poor women in the District of Columbia to receive uh, care under Medicaid that the um, Congress had, had uh, eliminated through a rider they put on a bill. Uh, I went to court. I went to traffic court because we don't prosecute. We don't have a court to prosecute uh, adults. So I was in traffic court. Uh, I had to listen, actually had to listen to a tape on drunk driving before they they uh, heard my case of disorderly conduct in obstructing traffic in a protest. So we do, you know, it's a really, really messed up system that we have in the District of Columbia. And this new Attorney General certainly will have some great challenges that he has to face. And but but you know, I think you can tell from our brief interview that this man is up to the challenge. He's uh, um, a lawyer has grown up in the District of Columbia, from what I understand. He's a third generation. Washingtonian. So, um, you know, he, um, I think will do a really as good a job as can be done in that office. And I look forward to working with him. Um, uh, let's move on to a couple other issues that we have in the district. Like I said, we briefly addressed the idea that the Republicans are coming for us. They certainly are. I mentioned, you know, uh, Representative Clyde from Georgia and Mike Lee from Utah, who's a senator, and uh, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, and, and uh, uh, you know, Representative Con Congressman Davis, who wants to change our voting laws. Now, the District of Columbia, being a liberal enclave, and the nation's capital, which always gets attention, the Republicans are going to come directly for us just for the PR value, for the public relations value, to get their agenda, push their agenda forward and get national attention because you can do that in the District of Columbia, right? With the nation's capital, people pay attention to what goes on here. Um, like you said, we assume, you know, that we have a safety valve in the Senate and the president, the White House, that they won't approve uh, changes, these drastic changes like eliminating our mayor and eliminating our, uh, our uh, city council who passes laws in the District of Columbia. Uh, but nonetheless, they will attack us and they will put riders on bills. Now, there's a new... The, as they create the rules in the House, as you know, the session starts uh, with them um, um, creating rules. And now that they have a speaker after like 128 ballots or whatever the hell it was, they finally get a speaker. Uh, one of the first rules they passed is that uh, anybody can put a rider on, on, on bills. And, and this is a favorite thing that they do at the District of Columbia. They've always been able to do this, actually. So this is nothing new. But any member of Congress, any single member of Congress, you put a rider 
on a bill in the District of Columbia, and we can we can expect that there will be several, and that we'll have to fight to get them off. Our our delegate in Congress, if, if you know how the system in the district works, we have a non-voting delegate named Eleanor Holmes Norton, and she spent an inordinate amount of her time in Congress just fighting to get gun riders off bills. These guys, you know, they love the NRA. The NRA gives them money. And when I say these guys, I mean conservative Republicans. And they're constantly putting, um, you know, gun riders on our bills in, in the hopes of changing the laws in the District of Columbia and getting publicity and also getting support from the NRA. You know, if you're a congressman from Texas or you're a congressman from Georgia or you're a congressman from Virginia, there's not a lot you can do to change the gun laws in those states because those states have very liberal gun laws. And let me point out that where liberal gun laws get you sometimes, a six-year-old boy shot his teacher in Virginia with a gun that his mother legally, had legally, that he got his hands on. So um, if you want to change a gun law and you want the favor of the, of the NRA so that you can get their support, uh, you come attack Washington's gun laws. We have tough gun laws in the district. I think we have appropriate gun laws in the district. Uh, but uh, and so do the people of the district. By the way, they've been uh, they've been questioned on this many times, and uh, they've always uh, affirmed the the belief that we should have strict gun laws, especially in the District of Columbia. Look, we've got <clears throat> dignitaries from all over the world. We have uh, Congress. We have the House. We have the Senate. We have the Supreme Court. We have the government, uh, and and. If anybody should have strict guns laws, it's, it's the District of Columbia. But we can, we can <clears throat> assume that they will be attacked, along with many other things in the district, over the uh, next two years, and we need to be prepared for that. And I'm sure the Attorney General will support us, and we need the support of the people as well. Look, we talk about statehood all the time. We talk about why we should have statehood. Uh, you just heard the Attorney General say he's going to make the argument uh, for why the district should become a state. Uh, it, everybody in, in Congress understands that uh, statehood for the District of Columbia is constitutional. It's the right thing to do. This isn't about what's right or wrong. It's not about what's best for the people, actually. It's, it's about two more Democrats in the United States Senate. The uh, conservatives in Congress, Republicans in Congress, actually, don't want two more Democratic, liberal Democratic senators in the District of Columbia. And this is what the fight of statehood has always been about. You have... South Dakota and North Dakota, because the Republicans wanted four senators instead of just two. 
So they split the Dakota in half. You've had, you can go back to the Missouri plan, slave state, non-slave state. Uh, it's always been about power. And as our favorite son, Frederick Douglass said, uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. So we need to make a demand. And we don't make a demand. We go up there, we send the mayor, we send the, the chairman of the city council, and they explain to uh, members of Congress that this is constitutional and it's the right thing to do. Well, these guys know that. And they put an inordinate effort into blocking us because they don't want two more senators. Now, what I don't understand, I've got to be honest with you, I don't understand how we pay $80 million to get a single senator from the state of Georgia, who's a Democrat, who put that money into his election to make sure he got reelected. And in Washington, D.C., where you could get two Democrats, we put in less than a million dollars a year to work on this. That's crazy. You put $80 million into our fight for statehood, and you'll have two more liberal Democratic senators in there. And if you care about a woman's right to choose, if you care about legalized marijuana, if you care or decriminalize marijuana, whatever your position is on that, if you care about same-sex uh, couples being equal, there's so many issues that people in the District of Columbia care deeply about that that two Democratic senators from the District of Columbia would fight for. So if you're a, if you believe in women's rights, if you believe in a better environment, if you believe in equality, you should support the idea of sending two more Democrats to the United States Senate. And we should stop fooling around and talking about what's right and wrong. We should get down to the issue. And the issue is two more Democrats. It's as simple as that. And the court, as uh, uh, Attorney General Schwab pointed out, the court in the seminal case, uh, Adams v. Clinton, um, said that we have a political fight on our hands. There's nothing we can do in the courts. The Constitution says that Congress shall have exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever. And we found out after years and years of legal wrangling that uh, you can't have something declared unconstitutional that's actually in the Constitution. So people keep on saying that what we're trying to do is unconstitutional, and that's not true because we're not changing the um, the way the nation's capital works. There would still be the government would still be independent. We're only talking about the residential areas of the District of Columbia becoming a state and being made whole. Uh, so um, we've learned after years and years of political wrangling that we have no leg to stand on in the courts, and we have to do this politically. And when you think about it, this is the way it's always been done. This is the way civil rights struggles have always been done. The government and the courts uh, did help desegregation, but more important than that, it was the people in Montgomery that refused to ride the buses, 
That's what changed things. That's what got people to pay attention. That's what uh, made the difference. And that's what we need to do in the District of Columbia. We need to come out. We need to protest. We need to not only say this is unfair, but say, as Douglas said, said we're not going to take it anymore. Uh, you know, Frederick Douglass, in one of his most famous speeches, said, uh, it's, it's not the light that we need to bring. It's the heat. It's the fire. It's the fire that we need to bring. And that's what we need to bring in the District of Columbia. Um, people know on Capitol Hill what's right and wrong for the people of the District of Columbia. They just don't care. It's all about partisan politics. And we need to impress upon the Democrats. It amazes me that the Republicans stand so strongly against us. And just so you understand what that means, that in 40 years of fighting for statehood, there's only been one Republican congressman that ever voted in favor of it. Only one. We've passed a bill in the House of Representatives to make D.C. a state twice, and there's not a single Republican on either one of those bills. It's come up in the Senate. There was companion legislation in the last Congress, in the Congress before that. Um, but in the last Congress, we had 47 co-sponsors who were uh, all Democrats, not a single, not a single Republican on the bill. So um, this is a partisan fight, and it's time that we start fighting and stop explaining to them uh, why we should do this, but actually say, we're not going to take it anymore. We're going to stand up and we're going to fight for our rights. So with that, today we're going to end the show a little early because our guests had to leave. And I know you're probably tired of hearing me uh, uh, my pronunciations and uh, lecturing. Uh, so we're going to leave you tonight with a song uh, that we dedicate to the new attorney general, uh, the beautiful voice of Karen Carpenter, uh, who, who left us way too early. Um, so we'll talk to you next week. Hopefully we'll have another interesting guest and we wish you all the best for the, for the coming week and the coming new year. Um, or, or the new year that's already here. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We've only just begun to Give the people their right to vote. 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 Give the people their right to vote.